chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, we're also going to project the text on the screen. So let's continue in this book and hear what God has to say. We're going to be reading verses 7 to 11, chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. So to you belongs the glory today. To you belongs the glory of your word and what you're about to teach us. Lord, would you make us a people that does point to you in all things, that shows that God is truly among us. Would you receive glory now, even in our hearts as we receive this? Prepare us, Lord, to be instructed, to be encouraged, to be challenged, whatever each of us needs. And may that be to the, to the end that we become more and more like Christ, our Savior, in our character and our actions. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not at all uncommon for churches to have disunity and strife among its members. Uh, I wish that weren't the case, but if you've been in churches for very long, you already know that. That's probably been your experience somewhere along the way. It used to surprise me uh, when I first started out uh, attending a church out of college. Um, I was a pretty young believer, and I had the impression that if you put a bunch of Christians all in the room together, that nothing but good could come of that. <laughs> right? Wouldn't our common faith in Jesus unite us and compel us to always speak well and do, do well for each other? Well, I didn't know that over the next 20 years at that church in Minnesota that we would go through two major church splits, five senior pastors, and after 20 years, only 20 people would be left from the original 450 that started. And I've learned that this is not uncommon because it's hard for Christians to stick together for the long haul because after all, we still sin, we still disappoint, we still annoy each other and the temptation is to be divisive and to walk away, sometimes abandoning the idea of church altogether. Well, Christians weren't different in Peter's time and he knew that. He started this letter reminding his readers and us of what we have in common. And it's a long list of things. You are elect exiles, he said. Uh, you are the people God chose to receive his grace and mercy in this world that is not your true home. You're a chosen race. 
You're a a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. All these words that would have been used to describe the people of Israel in the Old Testament, God's covenant people then, he said that you're that. You're God's covenant people. You're a new community that's been created in Christ. So you have all this in common. And one might think, as I did as a young Christian, well, this makes church life easy. And that the only trouble that we'll ever receive is from people who are not part of the church, people who are not Christians. And for sure, that is the background situation of the letter, that kind of trouble. But Peter knows that Christians can give each other trouble as well, and that's what he addresses here. Three times he uses the term one another, which means the focus has turned to the church. It has turned to the fellowship of believers To them and to us, he says, keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Use your gift to serve one another. He knows he needs to say these things because they don't come naturally to us. God's love doesn't always translate immediately into our love for others. It's something that we need to grow into, something that we pursue. We have to be reminded to pursue. So that's what this passage is about. It's a reminder to love one another, to serve one another as fellow recipients of God's varied grace, as he calls it in verse 10. This is about being the church for one another. The church as Christ intended it to be. The church where God's grace is not only a doctrine that we believe in, but something that we experience through each other. Now, we do experience much of that here at Sovereign Grace Church, but we can always grow in it and we can always lose it, which is why we need reminders like this in the Scriptures. So let's strengthen our conviction Let's hear a fresh vision of what God wants the church to be. The the passage starts out with some perspective about our situation. Peter says this in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? That sounds a little morbid. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a little pessimistic right? Uh, Brings up images of the doomsday prophet on the street corner with the long hair and sandals, and he's got the sign that says, the end is near, you know? um, And since Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, it seems also a little premature um, because the end has not come yet. So what does he mean? Well, simply put, it's a reminder that we're to live with the end in view. Live in light of eternity, and eternal realities. Our tendency is only to live in the now, to mainly concern ourselves with things that are right in front of us. Your job, school, marriage, raising kids, recreation. And we could think mainly about today or mainly about this week, or if you're a really good planner, you might be thinking a couple years out. And it's necessary to think about those things, but it's not enough to just think about those things because those things will end. The end of all things is at hand. Certainly, they're going to end on the day of your death. 
But Peter's got bigger picture than that. He's thinking about the day in which Christ is going to bring this world to an end, and he's going to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Because in the previous verses, he spoke about him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's a reference to Jesus. He has gone into heaven with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. This is Jesus who came into the world to die for our sins, that he might bring us to God, but who is also going to come back as judge. He's going to bring this present world to a close, and he's going to gather up all of his elect from the four winds, and they will be with him forever in paradise. And he's going to gather out of his kingdom all causes of evil, all evildoers, and judge them for their unbelief and their evil deeds. Peter says these are things that Jesus is ready to do. He is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're to live as if this could happen any moment, which is also what the Lord encouraged us to do. In Mark 13, 33, he said, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. You don't know. So keep awake, keep spiritually awake, remember the end, remember eternity, remember what is going to happen, remember the end of the story that you're in. Don't forget about it. Don't get lost in the, in the forest, you know, looking at each individual tree and forgetting the big picture. Keep awake to the unseen realities. Don't set your hope on things that will end. Rather, set your hope on the things that will never end. That is, going back to chapter 1, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep that in view. Now, when you have your hope there, it will help you live in a certain way here. Peter goes on to tell us what that way is, and what that way is, is be the church for one another. Treat each other like the fellow travelers that you are on the way to the celestial city, to use imagery from John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Here's how you do that. Peter gives us two big categories. You pray and you love. You pray and you love. Let's talk about each of those, starting with you pray. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, Since the end of all things is at hand, therefore certain things should follow, namely, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Other translations read like this, uh, clear-minded and self-controlled, or clear-headed and disciplined. A good way to picture what Peter's talking about here is the Gerasen demoniac after he had been healed by Jesus after he had cast out the legion of demons. You might be familiar with the story. There's this wild man. He's howling at the moon, literally. He's out there crying out day and night. He lives in a graveyard. He's always 
just so crazy that people are trying to restrain him, but he bursts away all the shackles. This guy's just completely out of control. And then Jesus comes, and he casts out the legion. And it says that they found this man clothed and in his right mind. Right mind is the same word that's being used here. It's a person who's thinking clearly, who's engaged with reality, and is handling it in a, in a mature manner. It's the opposite of mania. It's controlled, disciplined, clear-headed, clear-thinking. That's how Peter wants us to think. You could, keep, you could sum it up as, keep sane and sober. Uh, keep your head. Keep your wits about you. And since the context of the letter is being a Christian in a non-Christian world, it means don't let the hardships of following Jesus rattle your brains. Don't go into a panic about what's happening all around you or to you. Instead of that, what do you do? You pray. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see, you can't pray when you're in a panic. Your mind is too distracted with all the things that worry you. Uh, It's like you're trying to have a conversation at a restaurant, but there's a TV on. (laughs) And no matter how hard you try, you keep gravitating toward that big screen. And you don't care about UFC fighting or whatever, but that's what's on the screen. And you just, it pulls you away. It's a distraction. And so you can't have this conversation. Or maybe it's more like you have your cell phone out while you're talking to somebody else, and you just cannot resist that beep that tells you you have a notification. You have a text. I wonder what that is. And all of a sudden, I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm looking into the netherworld of Facebook that's what, that's what Paul, what, what Peter's telling us to do here. He's saying, you've got you to discipline yourself and remove your mind from all the distraction so that you can pray. <laughs> Mental self-discipline for the purpose of prayer so that you can talk to God and have that conversation. So, yes, there are things that we need to know about, things that need our attention. We can't say, just block the world out. So we need to know, we need to be intelligently engaging with reality, but be self-controlled with your thoughts. Remember how your story ends. Remember you're on your way to everlasting life to the heavenly city. So don't panic, but pray instead. Pray about what's going on and leave it in God's hands. Paul said it this way in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a big category, anything. Do not be anxious. So whatever that thing is that you're anxious about, that's a thing not to be anxious about. <laughs> but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, Pray about the things that concern you. Pray about the news. Pray about that relationship that's hard. Pray for people to come to know Christ. Let your requests be made known to God. 
and it will keep you, it will help you keep, keep your head, so to speak. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds. So you keep your head so you can pray, and you pray so you can keep your head. But prayer is necessary. And where the church comes into this is that many of those prayers are going to happen for the church and in the context of the church. If you go back to Acts 2.42, we saw that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they're gathering together to pray the prayers. Prayers for one another, prayers for the gospel to go out, but they're getting together and they're praying about these things. So that's the first thing to do to be the church is to pray. Keep your head and pray. The second thing Peter says you do is you love. You love. In particular, you love the church. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So above all, whatever else you do, don't neglect this. Love one another earnestly. That is fervently, at full strength, with a deep commitment. Uh, This is not half-hearted, this is not duty, this is not I'm doing it because I have to or somebody told me to. I'm all in on this. Above all, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be loving one another earnestly. Now, Peter's going to give us specific ways we do that in the rest of the passage, and we'll get to those. But let me just stay on this big picture for a moment, this exhortation to keep loving one another earnestly. He says we're to do that above all as if this is really important. Like this is the key to everything. (laughs) I mean, if you forget to do everything else, remember to do this much at least. Keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, do that. Now, why should we do that above all? Two reasons come to my mind. I think the first one is that this is how the gospel really gets lived out among believers in community. This is how the gospel really gets lived out among believers in community. This is how we help each other experience the love that God has shown us through Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love love for one another is imitation. It's imitating Jesus. Jesus first loved us, now we love one another just as he loved us. And how did he love us? Earnestly, fervently, all in, to the point of dying for our sins on the cross. Doing everything necessary to bring us to him in glory forever. Now we get to make that love real for one another, so to speak. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Our love for one another, if it's to reflect the gospel, is love that covers sins. That's to say, it is a forgiving love. It seeks not to let offenses get between us and break our fellowship. Proverbs 10:12 says, "Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses." So you can do one of two things when a person sins against you. You can either let it get under your skin, and you stew on it, and you rehearse it in your mind, and you replay that offense over and over again until you get angry, and then you stir up strife. Or you can seek a way to cover it, to overlook it, to not let it come between you. This is what Jesus has done for us. Paul said this in Romans 4, 7, and 8, and he was quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Jesus made that covering possible for us. He removed the offense of our sin out of God's sight we might, that we might have a relationship with God. So like the scapegoat that was sent off into the wilderness in Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, bearing our sins away to out of sight, that's what Jesus has done. God laid on him all of our offenses, all that's rotten, all that's lawless in us, and Jesus bore that on the cross And it all got buried in the tomb out of God's sight so that now he accepts us. He has covered it. There's no hostility anymore. He's overlooked it because he dealt with it in his son. That's what we're to do with each other's sins. We let love cover them. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin. It doesn't mean that we don't help each other to grow. Obviously, we're to pursue holiness. The Bible's full of uh, exhortations about that. So yeah, we're going to help each other to pursue holiness. So it doesn't mean that we just ignore sin, but it does mean we forbear with one another. We aren't quick to take up an offense every time we fail. We aren't keeping a list of wrongs. We let... Things roll off our back as much as possible. We avoid gossip and slander in response to being wronged. We don't stir up strife. We keep Sovereign Grace Church as a place where sinners get to experience what forgiveness looks like. Where love covers a multitude of sins. Because that's what God has done for us. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said along these lines. Those of us in the discipleship community read some of his book, Life, together. And he has a way of writing that's very provocative. We talked about that. Sometimes makes you uncomfortable, what he's saying, and it needs to be nuanced. But I think he provokes us in a good way. And here's another one of those provoking things that he says regarding the church. He said, the pious fellowship 
permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth and says, You are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner that you are, to God who loves you. We have the opportunity to make that real for each other by letting love cover a multitude of sins. If I could make my own provocative statement, I would say this. We want Sovereign Grace Church to be a place where it is safe to be a sinner. (laughs) We want Sovereign Grace Church to be a place where it is safe to be a sinner. I don't mean that we want the church to be a place where you can sin safely as if to encourage it. No, we pursue holiness and change, but I mean we want to make the church a place where we, when we sin against each other, when we disappoint each other, when we're in the wrong, the posture of our fellow believers is forgiveness. The desire is to cover it, to let offenses slide off our backs as much as possible, to not let it stir up strife. We know that love is going to cover a multitude of our sins, and we have a multitude of them. We all do. It's when a church ceases to love each other like that that we cease to be a church that's shaped by the gospel. I remember when our former church was going through one of our church splits, and I was an elder at the time, and I would give the announcements, and I was actually happy when there were no visitors because I, I could see the tension in the room. I could see the daggers in people's eyes and the factions that had formed and people sitting apart from each other and all the murmurings that are happening. And I'm like, oh, Lord, this is not what the church is supposed to be. (laughs) I don't want anybody to see this. By God's grace, that's not our experience here (laughs) at Sovereign Grace. I love to have visitors. (laughs) I want people to meet you. (laughs) And I want to be among you because there is grace here. There is love here. I know I can grow in this. You probably can too, but we can celebrate what God has done. We are his body. What we have is created by Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So love one another earnestly because this is how the gospel gets lived out among believers in community. That's the first reason we love the church. Here's the second reason we do it. It's because who else is going to show you God's love if not your brothers and sisters in Christ? Who else is going to do that for you if it's not the church? 
Remember the context of this letter is suffering as a believer in Christ. It's suffering as you try to walk out your faith in a non-Christian culture. And that's a hard road to walk. There are many discouragements, many setbacks, temptations, but Peter has pointed out we aren't walking this road alone. We are a people, not just individuals. We belong to a spiritual family who have all received grace. We have the same heavenly inheritance. We have the same Lord. So if we don't communicate God's love to one another, who is going to do it? That's why it's such a tragedy when Christians go after each other, when they attack each other, when they condemn each other, especially on social media. People say the most critical, unkind, and unjust things from the isolation of their room and their computer. And we can bear much more resemblance to the accuser of the brethren than to Jesus Christ, our advocate. Because we lose perspective. We lose the view of the end and of where we're going together and what God has done. That we have a multitude of sins and yet He has reached out to us to forgive us, to welcome us in. We forget that, and then we start being mean-spirited and self-righteous and any number of things. We can expect that from the world. But the Christian community is a place where we're to strengthen each other with grace. If we're not going to do it, who is? Peter would have us do it. Believers who live with the end in view will do that for each other. We will see each other as fellow elect exiles, walking this hard road, helping each other along the way. We know we're going to our eternal home, where, in fact, everyone does keep loving one another earnestly. (laughs) That's our future eternal experience, being in a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards called it, where everyone constantly and only loves one another endlessly and perfectly. So why not bring that experience into today where we need it? (laughs) Because it is hard to live in this world. And if we're not going to do that for one another, where is it going to come from? Let's bless each other. Let's encourage and help one another and bring the future experience into today. That's what Peter would have for them and for us. And I do thank God that that is active here. So let's look at some of the specific ways we love the church. That's what the rest of the passage is about. Ways that we love one another earnestly. The first is verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is about having people into your homes. And probably providing a meal. Maybe even having somebody over for several days if they're out-of-town guests. But it's about having them in your house and hosting people and talking to them, giving them your attention. This was especially important in the early church because they didn't have big buildings to meet in, so oftentimes the churches were in homes. 
Um, there's also a fair amount of persecution. There was poverty. And so there was a need to be helping one another out physically with a place to sleep, with food. So it's very important in the early church, but it's always important. But we read in Acts 2.46 about the early church, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Hospitality was in some ways necessary, but it was also encouraged and it was also what people did when they were full of grace, when they had encountered Christ. They started to open their doors, open my house, come in, fellow brother or sister. Let us talk together about our common salvation. Let us do that over great food. So Peter's saying, do that for one another. Have people into your house for a meal, for fellowship. But he adds this qualifier, show hospitality without grumbling. Don't complain about it. Don't resent it. I think we know why he has to say that. (laughs) What does it take to have people over? You got to clean your house, right? Because you haven't for a month. But now you got people coming over. (laughs) So there's a big stressor. It's going to cost you something because now you got to buy some extra groceries. You're going to have to cook for more people than you're used to, so you're going to have to use some of those kitchen things you don't use very often and more of it. You have to give your guests your attention for a few hours. (laughs) It focuses on them. (laughs) So you're taking time out of your day to give your attention to somebody else for a while. Could be longer, could be days if they're staying with you. You're sacrificing your time, your labor, your money, and when it's over you got to clean up. <laughs> Hospitality is sacrifice. So we are tempted to grumble, aren't we? Especially if the evening didn't go so well. <laughs> and you wonder, was that really worth it? <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this again. But it's worth it because it's loving like Jesus loved. He was the host at a banquet in the wilderness where he broke bread and passed it out. He said, "People, have people sit down in groups and pass this all out to them. And he gave thanks to God. And that's an example that he's the bread of life. So we love like Jesus loves when we show hospitality. And I have to honor Mary for being such a great example If you haven't been into our house, it's probably because we don't know you. (laughs) Because you're not part of the church, maybe. We have plenty of people in our house that we didn't know. But Mary has set the table for everybody. And she will again today. You guys are all coming over, I hope, to our house for the all-church gathering. And you're bringing food. So you're already practicing it if you're part of that. But I just have to commend Mary for all the work for having an endless stream. (laughs) So hospitality, that's how we love each other. Here's another way, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
So this topic of spiritual gifts is one that deserves a whole sermon, in fact, several sermons, and we don't have time for that today, but I feel okay about that because we're going to have a, spirit, a series on the Holy Spirit that's going to last for very long, from after Easter to end of summer, which will include talking about spiritual gifts and using them for one another. So I'm okay holding off on some of the ammunition there, but... Here's one thing I want to point out from this text, which is that God has given each one a gift. God has given everybody a gift and and more than one, most likely. The word for gift is charisma in the Greek. It's where the word charismatic comes from. So biblically speaking, every believer is a charismatic, whether you know it or not. Charisma is a form of the word charis, which means grace. So you have a gift of grace from God. It's an expression of God's varied grace, meaning it's part of a broad range of ways that God gifts people with certain abilities and certain expressions of His power. Some of them are more permanent, like a gift of teaching. Some are more occasional, like a prophetic word. Some are more natural, like being able to fix anything as a helper. And some are more supernatural, you might say, like interpreting a tongue. Many of them are listed in Scripture, but Scripture doesn't exhaust all the possibilities. But one thing they have in common is they're all expressions of God's grace toward us. And here's what those gifts are for. They are for serving one another. Use your gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, good stewardship of your gift is using it to serve one another. That's what it's for. That's why God gave it to you. If you don't use it that way, you're not a good steward of what God has given to you. Why? Because God wants you to earnestly love one another, and your gift is your unique way that you can do it. He placed that in you so that you specifically have something of God's varied grace that other people need. And by doing that thing, you are loving them. You are a a means of grace from God to show His love to His people. That's why you want to use those things. That's what they're for. So, for example, let's say you are really good with administration. That's a gift listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. So you know how to organize and plan and keep track of things. And you love spreadsheets. And you like being the wizard behind the curtain that just keeps everything running, all the systems going. You probably think I'm talking about Danny Santee. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> How do you steward that gift? Well, I know Danny's using it at work, in his workplace for the common good of the city, but he's also using it here. You know how hard it is to get about 80 volunteers organized and all their schedules matched up so that we complete children's ministry and and ushers and everything else? You know how hard it is to, to get the volunteers and sign all that up and track all that and make sure it happens? It's hard. But for a guy who's administrative... He likes that kind of thing. That's how he loves the church, by using that gift that way. 
It's earnest love. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> you have your own way. You have your own gift. And you don't need a test to find out what it is. Not if you live in community. Because people know what you're good at. <laughs> people have experienced it. They know where you're fruitful and they know what you love. Your love plus your fruitfulness equals probably your gifting. And use it for the good of the church. Now, Peter gives us two categories of gifts in verse 11. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So that applies to preaching for sure. Um, but it applies to all manner of speech in the church, like prophecy or evangelism or biblical exhortation, where the word is the content. And we're to treat that like the oracles of God. We're, it means we're not flippant about it. We're not just casual when talking about the things of God. We want to wield the sword of the Spirit carefully because it can cut wrongly and rightly. If we use it wrongly, it cuts the wrong way. If we use it rightly, it cuts the right way. We want to be serious about it. We want to be careful about it. We want to treat these holy things as holy. That's the speaking gifts. And then he talks about the serving gifts. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So we need people who talk, and we need people who do stuff. <laughs> Talking and doing, we need both of those things. And your gifts may be in one kind of category versus another. But we need what each, each other has. And he says, do it in the strength that God supplies. Um, way back when, I had a message on the living by the promises of God and how, how we actually do serve by the strength that God supplies. I got it from John Piper and his acronym, APTAT. How do you serve in somebody else's strength? It just seems like a weird concept. Um, but his, his acronym, APTAT, was, was this, and you can look this up on desiringgod.org later. Um, but the first thing you do is you admit that Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So the beginning of not serving in your own strength is to realize my strength is not enough. I admit that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Then you pray for God's help. So Lord, I can't do it, but you can. It looks like you've called me to, into this thing to do. So Lord, help me. And then you claim a promise. You trust a promise that God will help you. That's why it's good to have Scripture memorized so you know what some of those are. Then you act. Then you do the thing that you're called to do. And then when God meets you with his promised strength, then you thank him for what he did so that you don't think it was just you. So APTAT, that's an acronym. Look it up on John Piper. Bottom line, all of this is about being the church for one another with the end in view. We're fellow saints helping each other on our way to our heavenly inheritance. So we love, we pray for one another, we serve each other, we have each other into our homes. That's what a community shaped by the gospel looks like. Let me just close with one last thing. Because over all of that, there's this bigger picture even. Where is it all going? And it's, it's this. This is all for the glory of God, ultimately. This is all for the glory of God, ultimately. Verse 11, we pray and we love 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, we don't love each other only for the sake of one another, but for God to get glory for what he's done in us through Jesus Christ. It's possible to turn community into an idol. It's possible to want community more than we want God. And when we do that, we ruin the very reason for the community, which is that God may be honored, praised, noticed, credited for everything. That's why we are together. The, the reason, the, the loving one another is the environment in which one ought to be able to see it and say, surely God must be among you, which is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. As the gifts are being exercised, particularly prophecy, he talks about an unbeliever or a, an outsider coming in, falling down on their face and worshiping and saying, surely God is among you. So that's why we want to act this way, praying and loving each other so that Jesus Christ will get noticed as the author of this, as the one who has changed us, who has made us new and different. And if we don't have that in view, then the community can become the idol itself. And then it ceases becoming the Christian community, <laughs> but just another form of idolatry. May it not be so. <laughs> and it won't be so if we keep the end in view <laughs> of where we're going. <laughs> and we're just trying to bring that into today by loving one another. So may the Lord help us to use our gifts that way. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you care about us so much that you would put these kind of exhortations in the Word, um, that you would want us to experience in the now the love that we're going to experience in the fullness later. That your whole intention is for us to be full of joy and joy among one another and to draw strength from you through people. So, Lord, thank you for what you've already done here. Thank you that there's very much that we celebrate together for, uh, for the love that exists. Uh, may it excel still more. May it be motivated by our sights of your love for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.